Haggai chapter 1, verse 1. In the second year of Darius, the king of the sixth month and the first day of the month, came the word of the Lord by Haggai, the prophet, unto Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Josedek, the high priest, saying, Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, This people say the time is not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. Then came the word of the Lord by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you, O ye, to dwell in your sealed houses, and this house lie waste? Now therefore, thus saith the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much, and bring in little. Ye eat, but ye have not enough. Ye drink, but ye are not filled with drink. Ye clothe you, but there is none warm. And he that earneth wages, earneth wages, to put it into a bag with holes. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the mountains and bring wood and build the house, and I will take pleasure in it, and I will be glorified, saith the Lord. Ye looked for much, and lo, it came to little, and when ye brought it home, I did blow upon it. Why, saith the Lord of hosts, because of mine house that is waste, and ye run every man unto his own house. Therefore the heaven over you is stayed from dew, and the earth is stayed from her fruit. And I called for a drought upon the land and upon the mountains and upon the corn and upon the new wine and upon the oil and upon that which the ground bringeth forth and upon men and upon cattle and upon all the labor of the hands. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Josedek, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him and the people did fear before the Lord. Let me ask you a question. What is the most valuable thing in your life? It may be an activity. It may be a possession. It may be a person. What one thing in your life, if you had to do without it, would affect your life the most? Think about that. God's Word teaches us that anything that comes between us and God is an idol. Amen. And I believe there are many of God's people today that are worshiping idols. Amen. Okay? On that basis, we would have to say that most American believers at some point in their lives have to plead guilty to some form of idol worship. But you know what the most, and I've shared this with you before, but the most convenient and the most available idol to worship is, I'll give you his name, S-E-L-F. Self. I know what the Bible says, but I, right? I know what God would have me to do, but I want, you know what we've just done? We have just dethroned God and we just have enthroned self. When we put ourselves above God, when we put our desires, our wants above God's desires and God's wants, then we have become guilty of worshiping self. Now this message this morning actually deals with priorities. Someone thanked me for that when I mentioned that or they saw that this morning. Great, that, okay, good. I'm glad we like priorities. The Bible's full of priorities. The Bible is full of firsts. By the way, you know what the name Genesis means? It means origins or beginnings. So in Genesis we have the first people, the first husband and wife, the first marriage we have 
you know, the first sin, we have the first birth of children, we have the first murder, we have the first double homicide, we have the first bigamy committed in the book of Genesis. I mean, it's just full of firsts. But then we get over in the New Testament and it gives us, we start talking about priorities. And Jesus gives some of those priorities. I'm just going to mention two by way of introduction. Matthew 6.33, of course, we're familiar with it. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Seek ye when? First the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and God will take care of all your needs. Now, I know that to be true because I've experienced that. And I haven't always put God first, but my needs have always been taken care of. Amen. And then here's another first. And it's the first and great commandment, Jesus said. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy might. So in other words, the Bible teaches us that God and God's service and God's work ought to come first in our lives. And one of the great problems we have as believers and as members of the Lord's churches today is maintaining the proper priorities in our lives. Lord, what would you have me to do? Not here, Lord, what I want you to do for me. Now, as we look at our text, what is happening? The Jews have returned from Babylonian captivity. Now, they're happy, I'm sure, to be back in their land. And you would think that, hey, God's gotten us back home. God's brought us out of Babylonian captivity, and we are here now, and we ought to be worshiping God. Remember, Nehemiah had gone and built the wall. God had led him to do that. Zerubbabel's going to build the temple. But they ought to be back home and they ought to be so thankful to God for returning them home that worship would be a priority in their lives. And where was the place of worship in the Old Testament? Well, first it was the tabernacle and then it was the temple. It was the place where they went to offer their sacrifices and to worship God. But you know what they did? Instead of building the temple and completing the temple, they made sure they built their own houses first. We're going to fix for us first. And then maybe we'll worry about doing things for God. You know, that's quite a contrast from what you see in 1 Chronicles chapter 17, 1. Listen to what David said. The scripture says, Now it came to pass as David sat in his house. So you see where he is. David said to Nathan the prophet, Lo, I dwell in a house of cedars, but the ark of the covenant of the Lord remaineth under curtains. It bothered David that he had a nice home and the ark of the Lord sat in a tent. And David said, I want to build the temple. Of course, we know God didn't allow him to do that because he had shed blood and he was a man of war and so forth. God let his son Solomon do that, but God did let him gather the material for the building of the temple. But it really bothered David that he would live in the finery and in the luxury that he lived in while the Ark of the Covenant that the worship of God went lacking. Now, we're going to draw a parallel here because the temple in the Old Testament is a parallel to what? The Lord's churches in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul told that church at Corinth, know you not that you're the temple of God. This church is a temple of God. What is a temple? It's a place of worship. And so we come together, we meet together here to worship God. Listen to what he said in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 through 22. Now therefore you are no more strangers and foreigners, 
but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord in whom also you're built together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. God's Spirit indwells this church. Amen. I wouldn't want to be a part of it if he didn't. And we're not talking about this building. We're talking about this body. God's Spirit indwells this church body. And so we are a temple of God. Now, in the early days of the Jerusalem church, do you remember what people did? Now, if you recall on the day of Pentecost, people came from all over there in Jerusalem. And on that day of Pentecost, the church was empowered and they went out and began to preach the gospel. And people were saved. And the scripture says, that God added to the church on that day. And so many people who had come from other places into Jerusalem, once they were saved, they didn't want to go back home. And so they stayed and there was a great financial burden upon the church at Jerusalem. So men like Barnabas and probably some others had land and possessions and they sold that and gave every bit of money that they got for that to the church. Of course, we know about Ananias and Sapphira and what they did and we're not going to talk about them right now. But what was happening is those who were a part of the church were supplying for the church. And do you know that in these last days of the church age, there's not quite that kind of love for the Lord's churches, even in the hearts of God's people. And in fact, what we find ourselves doing today is we're doing things today and we're working hard and concentrating today as believers on things that in 50 years are not going to matter. You know, there'll be people, well, let's, let's just go back a little bit to earlier this year, to the first part of this year. There were people, I'm sure, I didn't watch it, so I don't know, but I'm sure there were people who were just torn up that their team didn't win the Super Bowl. Do you know what? I don't even know who played in this one this year. I don't know who played in the one last year or the one before. It doesn't matter, folks. Amen. And we get so involved over things that just don't really matter. It's God's word that makes a difference. It's God that matters in our lives. So God gives Israel a warning and we're going to take that warning and apply it to us today as he spoke to these that Haggai writes to. God spoke through Haggai to them. And the first thing he says to them, he talks about their practice. He talks about what they were doing. Verse 2 talks about their attitude. Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts saying, this people say the time is not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. What they're saying is, well, it's not time to work on the temple yet. It's not that important. We've got other things to do. We'll get to it. Have you, uh, have you ever said, I'll get to it one of these days? I'll tell on myself. My office at home is a mess. And Friday I got to looking at it and I said, I need to straighten this up. It's still a mess. One of these days, you know, I'm going to do it. But I've got other things to do. And that's basically what these were saying. That, well, you know, the temple, it, we can hold off on that. Now, there are probably reasons. No doubt the work was hard. It was probably going to be hard work to rebuild the temple. I'm sure there were enemies. Ezra talked about the enemies that were there when he came back. So there were enemies in the land that didn't want. We know that Nehemiah faced enemies that didn't want the wall rebuilt. There were enemies that didn't want the temple rebuilt. But even with enemies, Nehemiah got the wall rebuilt, didn't he? 
And in fact, I'm going to tell you what the scripture says in Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 6. So built we the wall, and all the wall was joined together under the half thereof. Listen to the last part of this. For the people had a mind to work. Nehemiah could not build the wall by himself. Nehemiah had to get the people who were there, the people of Israel, the people who were going to live in that land, he had to get them together and unite them and for them to have a mind to work that we want to see something accomplished. You know, when churches, even in this day in which we live, will grow, when God's people say, we want to grow. We want to move forward. We want to see people saved. See, I'll tell you what's going on in churches. And this is probably unpopular to say. I'm going to say it anyway. I've never let that stop me ever. Years ago, we developed what we call a professional ministry. And we hired pastors to do the work of the church. Preacher, it's your job to go out and witness to people and lead them to the Lord and bring them to church. And so that sort of mindset has developed over the years. Well, it's not just the pastor's job to witness. Now, Paul told Timothy to do the work of an evangelist, yes, but he also told him to reprove, rebuke, and exhort with all longsuffering and doctrine. Timothy, you're to preach the word. God's people are to be the ones who are the ones with a mind to work. But the prevailing attitude is many times, you know, preacher, I'd, I'd be at church, but I'm just so busy. Well, we've got something to do Sunday, but, but you know, we'll, we'll get back eventually, preacher. And we make excuses to justify that attitude. You know one of the things, I'm just going to be plain. You know one of the things that bugs me the most, and bug's not really the right word, it irritates me the most. When people say, we're coming to church, and then they don't ever show up. Amen. You know what that's called, by the way? I was waiting for somebody else to shout it because I don't want to say it and make people mad at me. It's called a lie. Okay, thank you. And I repeated what they said for those on live stream. That's what it is. And sometimes we say that just to appease the preacher or whoever's inviting us. But listen, people do what people want to do. I would love to be able to go out and just round up a bunch of folks and say, you're going to church today. That's called kidnapping and you can't do it. It's against the law. But people do what they want to do and excluding illness, being out of town, some providential hindrance. Do you know why many people are not here today? Many members of this church are not here today. They don't want to be here. Amen. Now some are sick. Some are out of town. Some may be providentially hindered. But the only other thing left is I just don't want to go. And I know folks may get angry at me for that. But you know what that's called? It's called sin. James 4, 17. To him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not to him, it is sin. I was saying something to Joni just the other day. I said, people don't understand. If, if I could get people to understand this thing of momentum. It's hard to get a church to grow when you keep, you, you get a little momentum and then you lose it and you fall back. What, what are you talking about, preacher? Well, we have a good attendance for a Sunday or two and then all of a sudden it's, everybody decides to go on vacation at the same time or something. I may be preaching that other message now. But you can't grow and go forward without momentum. And a lot of that momentum is in the number that are present and here serving and working for the Lord. Well, secondly, look at verse 6. He talks about their actions. Ye have sown much, 
bring in little, you eat, you have not enough, you drink, you're not filled with drink, you clothe you, there's none warm, he that earns wages, earns wages to put in the bags. What he's saying is, you found time to do what you wanted to do. You wanted to eat, you found time to eat. You wanted to get you something to drink, you found time to get something to drink. You wanted to go shopping for clothes, you found time to go shopping for clothes. You wanted to go to work, you found time to go to work. You found time to do everything that you want to do. And by the way, all of these are honorable activities. There's absolutely nothing wrong with eating. There's nothing wrong, depending on what you drink, I guess. Nothing wrong with drinking. There's nothing wrong with wearing clothes. There's nothing wrong with working a job. You know when things like that become dishonorable? When we put them ahead of God. When we say this is more important than serving God. This is more important than being faithful to God. Listen to Luke chapter 9 beginning in verse 59. Jesus is speaking. He said to another, follow me. That was what Jesus said. And listen to what this one said. But he said, Lord, suffer me first to go and bury my father. Jesus said unto him, let the dead bury their dead. But go thou and preach the kingdom of God. And another also said, Lord, I will follow thee, but let me first go bid them farewell, which are at home at my house. Jesus said unto him, No man having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. Now, don't get ahead of me here. Jesus is not saying that there's anything wrong with attending a funeral and honoring a family member, a friend, or something like that. There's nothing wrong with that. And he didn't say there's something wrong with saying farewell, going and seeing some friends and saying farewell to them. But what he's saying is, it's wrong to make excuses for not following him. This one that said, well, I've got to go bury my father. His father wasn't dead yet. That's what he's saying. Lord, I'll follow you as soon as daddy's gone. But until then, I'm not going to follow you. This other one wanted to go back and just making an excuse for not serving the Lord. There are other things that I need to do. And so that's what Jesus is condemning right there. I've done this before, but listen to this math. We have 168 hours in a week. You know, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 168 hours. Now, if you come to Sunday school, this service, tonight, and Wednesday night, how many hours is that? I'm making it easy for you to get the answer, okay? It may depend on the preacher sometimes, but it's generally about four hours. Do you realize that four hours is only 2.5% of 168 hours? So if all of my service to God is just going to church and I make every service, I'm only giving God two and a half hours of my life. Now, if we look at 168 hours and we just want to tie the 168 hours to God, I mean, he deserves it all, but if we want to just give him 10% of that, that's 16.8 hours. And we're spending two and a half in church. What are we doing in the service of God with the rest of that time with that other 14.3 hours? I know it may seem like we're in church for a long time every Sunday. We're not really. I don't know if you were to stand up here, the time would go by like that, you know. Seems like I'm just getting started and it's time to quit. But what are we doing with our time instead of serving God? Again, we do what we want to do. And then in verse 9, I call this their aspiration. He says, you looked for much and lo, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I did blow on it. Why saith the Lord of hosts, because of mine house that is waste and you run every man unto his own house. Even though they forsake building the temple, 
The worship of God, the work of God, you know what they're doing? They're sitting at home saying, okay, Lord, bless us. They're not serving God, but they're asking God, it's this old thing of Lord, bless us anyway, you know. We're not going to be faithful, but Lord, bless us anyway. And we often practice our form of godliness and expect God to bless us. Why should he? If we as God's people, if we as a church are unfaithful to God, why should God bless us? Third John verse 2. We're going to finish 1 John on Wednesday nights eventually, and some have suggested, and I think I'm going to do it, going to 2 John and then 3 John. You know what John says in 3 John verse 2? He's writing to Gaius, Gaius, however you want to pronounce his name, the well-beloved. He is a faithful servant of God. And John says to him, Beloved, I wish above all things that thou mayest prosper and be in health, even as thy soul prospereth. What if God said this to us? I'm going to prosper you financially to the degree that you prosper spiritually. To the degree that you're faithful to me, to the degree that you love me, to the degree that you serve me, I'll prosper you financially. Or what if he said this, I'm going to prosper you as far as your health is concerned, to the degree that you're faithful to me. Where would we be as an individual if God said that? They looked for much, and yet when they looked for much, it didn't come to pass. So there's the practice Oh, they, they were ignoring God, but they wanted God to bless them. Now here, listen to God's protest right here, beginning in verse 3. Look at verse 5. And this is God's protest. He says in verse 5, Now therefore saith the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. That word consider is an interesting word. It means to set your heart on it. It means step back and take a long, hard look at your life, at your ways from God's point of view. See, it's easy to look at our own lives and say, boy, I'm busy, boy, I'm serving the Lord, boy, I'm faithful. But what does God say? By the way, you know there are no degrees of faithfulness. Amen. Either you're faithful or you're not. If your refrigerator decides one day out of the month, usually the day after you go to the grocery store, just to quit working, is it faithful? No. If your car decides to quit running two or three days out of the month, do you consider it faithful? You know what? I'd, about the second time one leaves me on the side of the road, it's gone. Amen. Because I want a car I can depend on. And yet we have developed degrees. Well, he's pretty faithful. She's pretty faithful. Well, they're not so faithful. No, you're either faithful or you're not faithful. God says, consider your ways. Over in the 14th chapter, and I love this, 14th chapter. And I'm going to turn there. 14th chapter of the book of Luke, beginning in verse 16. A man makes a feast. Okay, and he tells his servants in verse 16, after he had made this great supper, verse 17, he has sent his servant at supper time to say to them that were bidden, come for all things are now ready. Verse 18, this is like inviting people to church, by the way, because of the excuses. And they all with one consent began to make excuses. The first said unto him, I have bought a piece of ground and I must needs go and see it. I pray thee have me excused. Now, how many people would buy a piece of property without having looked at it first? But this man says, oh, I bought some property. I need to go see what I bought. This next one says, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I go to prove them. You mean you didn't prove them before you bought them? And so he begs to be excused. And another said, and he's the only one with a reasonable excuse. He said, I've married a wife and can't come. Okay. <laughs> 
But all of these begin to make excuses for not coming to this dinner that had been prepared for them. And sometimes we might have to admit to our excuses. That's just an excuse. Is that an excuse or is it a reason? You know, part of the perilous times that are talked about in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 4, that are going to come upon the Lord's churches, he said, men shall be lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God. That's what's coming. That's, that's what is taking place today. And so God says, first of all, consider your ways. But look back to verse 4 for just a moment. He says, consider your works. Is it time for you, O ye, to dwell in your sealed houses, and this house lie waste? Again, God's complaint is, you're living in luxury. You're living in your sealed houses. And by the way, that refers to houses that had really fine cedar-lined walls. They were beautiful furnishings. And God's saying, you live in your cedar-lined houses, your fine houses, your sealed houses, and my worship goes lacking. It's no sin to be wealthy, and it's no sin to live in a nice house. But when that wealth or that house or anything else, again, comes between us and God, it becomes, I'll say again, it becomes our idol. What is the root of all evil? People today misquote 1 Timothy 6.10 all the time. They say, well, money is the root of all evil. No, money is not. Money is not the root of all evil. Money is a tool. I might as well say a pair of pliers is the root of all evil as to say money is the root of all evil because pliers are just a tool and money is just a tool. What is it that makes money evil? It is the love of money. It is covetousness. It is wanting more than is necessary. It's wanting more than we can really use. And he says that that's the root of all evil. And in fact, in Colossians chapter 3 verse 5, the scripture says, covetousness is idolatry. Now here we are today as God's people. We have more. We do more. We go more. We want more than ever before in our lives. You want something to eat, what do you do? Stick it in the microwave. In a minute, it's done. Well, maybe two. You want to go somewhere, jump in the car. It's a lot faster than going by horse. And we just have all of these labor-saving devices. I thought about this last night. We have all of these labor-saving devices, time-saving devices, and we seem to have less time to do things. It's sort of like the American standard that what do we do when we get a bill paid off? We go make another bill, right? Amen. Boy, I'm going to pay off the car. Man, we're going to have so much money. And then we suddenly find something else that we want to buy. And we go and buy it and we create another bill. And we have labor-saving devices and time-saving devices. But we don't have any time today. We're often discontent with what we have. We can't seem to get what we want. God says, consider your works, consider your ways. And then he says in verse 6, consider your wealth. You've sown much and bring in little. It shows us the futility of laboring for material possessions. You eat, but you have not enough. You drink, but you're not filled with drink. You clothe you, but there's none warm. And he that earneth wages, earneth wages to put it into a bag with holes. Does it seem like the more you work and the harder you work, the less you get? That's called taxes, by the way, <laughs> if you hadn't figured that out. And it's called the price of gasoline, I guess, by the way. But it just seems like the more we work, the less we have. Why? Look at what God says in verse 9. He says, I did blow on it. Do you realize that all God has to, if we put anything ahead of God, 
and we start worshiping things ahead of God or even ourselves ahead of God, do you realize all God has to do is, that's it. Amen. Just, and God blows up on it and it becomes absolutely useless. God can cause all of our labor to come to absolutely nothing when we forsake him. Hang on to that thought. We're going to come back to it in just a moment. And everything that we can labor for, folks, is not lasting. Matthew chapter 6, Jesus said, beginning in verse 19, Lay not up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust doth corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, and where thieves do not break through and steal. And here is the key of our service, and here's the key of our lives in verse 21. He says, For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Amen. If my treasure is on this earth and on things of this earth, that's where my heart's going to be. And I'm going to be serving it. If my treasure is in heaven, I'm going to be serving God. People work harder today, but they don't seem to enjoy what they get. We're often discontent with what we have. Instead, we're to labor for wealth. God's word says so. And then God says, consider my will. Look at verses 7 and 8. He says in verse 7, consider your ways, go up to the mountains and bring wood, build the house. I'll take pleasure in it. I'll be glorified, saith the Lord. You know what he's calling for? He's calling for a reordering of our priorities. They said, we're going to build our house first and then we'll worry about the Lord's house. No, God says, change priority. There's something more important than building your house, and that is building my house. That is putting me first. We, as God's people today in whatever this is, 2022, need to rediscover what is truly important in life. Amen. We need to seek God's values over the world's values. And what he's saying in verses 7 and 8 is just this. Repent. Rededicate yourself to me. That's what he wants them to do, and that's what he wants us to do. We must determine according to God's word what is the most important thing in our lives because you look at verse 8 and look what he says. I'll take pleasure in it. See, when we obey God, when we follow God, he gets pleasure from that. He gets pleasure from our obedience, from our service. And then he says also, I will be glorified, saith the Lord. When we are obedient to God, you know what it does? It brings him glory. And he deserves all glory. So we're going to close with verses 9 through 11. Then we'll add verse 12 in right at the end. But in verses 9 through 11, we see what I call the penalty. The penalty. Look first of all at verse 9. Again, you look for much. Lo, it came to little. When you brought it home, I did blow up on it. Why saith the Lord of hosts? Because of mine house that is waste, and you run every man unto his own house. We're talking about material benefits right here. Why did their labor not satisfy them? Why couldn't they ever make enough money? Why couldn't they ever get enough things? Why are we often so disappointed with the results of our labor? Why does it always seem that our bills eat up everything? Pastor, man, I love this man to death. I'm not going to mention his name, but pray for him. He was a deacon in the first church I pastored. He and I were friends. We were just, we did things together. We'd go fishing together. We'd garden together. He was just a really good man. But... He asked me, he said to me one time, he said, I don't tithe. He was a deacon in the church. He said, I don't tithe. We're having one of those just frank discussions that we could have. And he said, but I can't figure out why, called his son's name, why he's always having to go to the doctor and have allergy shots or why the car's always needing tires or the car's always breaking down or, or this. And he began to name all kinds of things that were happening. You know what? Listen, folks, God's going to get his. Amen. 
You may not give it to him. You may not give it to him through the church, but God's going to get his. You may pay it to the doctor. You may pay it to the auto mechanic. You may pay it to the appliance sales person. But God is going to get his. And that's what this is talking about. They did all of these things. They, they would make sure they had something to eat, but they're always hungry. You ever been there? They made sure they had something to drink, but it seemed like they couldn't get enough to drink. They were always working and making money, but it just like they were putting in a bag that had holes in it. And they were saying, why? And God said, because I blew up on it. That's why. Because of my house that lies waste. Listen to what Jesus said in Luke 14, verse 26. If any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, in his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Now, I know that is in a structure or construction that is basically saying, you know, the Lord's saying, you can't love anything more than you love me, okay? And be my disciple. But here's the intent of it. Jesus is not going to share first place with anybody. Not even with myself. I cannot love myself more than I love the Lord. I cannot love myself more than I love God. If God is not in first place, if Jesus is not in first place in our lives, folks, we cannot be true disciples of the Lord. That's what he's saying. He has to come before everything, even the God of S-E-L-F. Remember the standard. Matthew 6.33, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. All right. And that's what we're to do. But then he says in verses 10 and 11, here's what's happened. The heaven over you has stayed from dew and the earth has stayed from her fruit. He said, I call for a drought upon the land, upon the mountains, upon the corn, upon the new wine, upon the oil, upon that which the ground bringeth forth, upon men and upon cattle and upon all the labor of the hands. God said, just going to be a drought in everything. Listen, have you ever wondered why a church, and I think I had us in mind, have you ever wondered how a church that preaches the truth and a church that stands for the truth can still seem to go unrewarded? Have you ever had that thought, ever considered that? Maybe we have the wrong priorities. Well, what are you talking about? Just turn over to Revelation chapter 2 for just a moment. I like talking about those churches in Revelation 2 and 3. And the church at Ephesus is the first one mentioned. And if you read those verses, we're not going to take the time to read them, but just look down through those verses, 1 through 6, and look at what was going on in the church at Ephesus. They worked, he said. They labored. That word labor means toil to the point of exhaustion. They endured. Jesus said to them, you've had patience, all right? So they had hung in there. And he says, you can't bear those that are evil. I don't think we like sin here either, do we? Well, a few of us don't. Okay. <laughs> but they couldn't bear those which were evil. And then they had taken some who said they were apostles and they had tried them and they had found them to be liars. This is a church that said we want to be as solid as a rock doctrinally. And then it says you haven't fainted, you hadn't given in, you haven't given up. You've hated the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which by the way the Lord said I hate too. But they were in danger of losing their candlestick. Why? Because you've left your first love. Amen. That honeymoon love. That love that put Jesus first above everything else had taken second place. Now, I believe the Lord wants us to be doctrinally straight. Doctrinally sound. If I didn't believe that, I wouldn't be here. 
But you can be straight as an arrow doctrinally and be as hard as a rock and cold as ice spiritually. Amen. And that happens when you lose that love for Jesus, that honeymoon type of love, that love where Jesus is first. Listen, rain was vital to the Jews. Absolutely vital to them. In fact, God had put them in a place. This is, I love this. God had put them in a place. Now remember, just in your mind, think of a map of where Israel is. God had put them in a place. They were dependent upon the westerly breezes to bring the moisture in off the Mediterranean Sea, bring the clouds over the land and for the rain to fall on the land. And so if God wanted to hold the rain back, what did he have to do? He just had to stop the wind from blowing in from the Mediterranean. And rain was absolutely vital to them. They were an agricultural society. Even their flocks were dependent upon, you know, even a, a cow or ox or a sheep can't live without water. And so they were dependent upon the rain. And guess what? God's blessings are just as vital to us today as one of the Lord's churches as rain was to Israel. Amen. And if God says, I'm going to withhold my blessings for whatever reason, there's a drought. And so we need to go back and find out, Lord, why, what is causing the drought. See, unfaithfulness doesn't just affect the unfaithful person. It affects the body collectively. You say, who are you preaching to, preacher? I don't know whoever God wants us to go to. That's who I'm preaching to. I have no one in mind. I have no situation in mind. But I just know what God's saying here in his word. Well, you get back over to verse 12. And by the way, let me say this. It's hard to preach a message like this to people you love. It's hard. It's very difficult. Get back over to verse 12. And I love this. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Josedek, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people. Just stop right there for a moment. There was a willingness to hear by two people. But then what does it add? When two people heard, other people heard. With all the remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him and the people did fear before the Lord. Some people decided to listen. We just sang that beautiful song. You know, Lord, give me ears to listen. I want eyes to see Jesus, but I want ears to listen for him to speak to my heart, for your word to speak to my heart. And my prayer is that God will give us people who will hear this message. Not just the words out of the preacher's mouth, but hear the message from the word of God. And then it goes on to say what? It says that they, verse 14, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Josedek, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and did the work in the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. You know what happened? A couple of people heard and they said, we're going to do it. And they didn't stop there. They did it. Okay. And other people heard them say, we're going to do it and saw them doing it. And they said, we'll do it too. And so they all got together and they came and they worked together. It's a corporate act. It's a corporate work of building up the church and, and witnessing and inviting people. But it takes everybody. Enthusiasm is contagious. Lack of enthusiasm is also contagious. But enthusiasm is contagious. But here's the thing about enthusiasm. There has to be someone that's willing to step out first and show that enthusiasm and say, I'll do it. Only when we allow God to stir us up will we be found doing the will of God. And here's my prayer for us. Here's my prayer for Bethel. 
that God will stir the hearts of all of his people. Those who are present here this morning, those who are watching by way of live stream, those who aren't present and not watching, but who may somehow, some way hear this message, that God will just stir the hearts of all of his people to an obedient faithfulness to him in being willing to witness of Christ, invite people to church, because you see, they're not going to come if we don't invite them. Invite people to church and see people who, of the people that come who God will add to this church because I believe he will.